0: Baptist Confession. We'll talk more about why that is next week, uh, when we give uh, a bit of history and background to the Confession. Uh, This study will, will take us quite some time. There are 32 chapters in the Confession, and so we'll work through them. Each chapter has various paragraphs underneath of them, and we'll talk about the structure of the Confession next week. It's actually a It's actually very well constructed, and if you understand some of that, it's helpful to have a a bit of background as you work through the confession to help give clarity to to what is meant. But as I said, we'll we'll deal with more of the, the confession itself, its history, background, kind of how to read it next week. Today we're going to be talking about creeds, confessions, and confessionalism, and why it would be uh, helpful for us to work through a confession like the 1689, or, or were others that may be available to us. Why this is helpful to us? Why, in fact, it's important that the church have confessions and maybe to correct some thinking about confessions and even creeds when we when we think about our kind of our current evangelical culture. In fact, you may have heard the statement uh, creeds or I'm sorry, deeds, not creeds. Or you may have heard the statement, no creed but the Bible. Um, you might have heard the statement, doctrine divides, but love unites, things like this. Um, so we'll talk about that as we move on and get down to that section where we address some of those things more specifically. In order to do this, it's going to be helpful for us to, to think together historically. So you understand that Um, we obviously have a, the church is not new, right? So the the church has been around for a while, right? And praise God, right? The church has been around for a while. And now one of the things is we'll talk about. One of the things that the confessions and creeds do is it unites us to the historic church. It helps us to remember that we're not alone. It helps us to, helps us to see and understand that we're part of a people of God through history, that, that there's actually nothing new to us. When, when, in fact, if there is anything new, if, if we're bringing a new teaching, something that's novel, you ought to be very concerned. And, and so there is this uh, helpfulness of going back and thinking historically about the church and about how the church has developed what she confesses, how she thinks together about her confessions and her creeds and things like this. And so... We're going to be spending a, a fair amount of time just looking historically together at, at the progression of creeds and, counts and uh, confessions, confessions mainly through the history of the church, talking about um, kind of the background of these things, how they came about, why they came about, and then uh, we'll wrap up discussing um, confessionalism, which is an ism. Most isms aren't good, but this is an ism that we would commend. And we'll talk about why that is. So let's first talk about the historic creeds. And in thinking about this, we have to answer the question, what is a creed? And in particular, as we'll look at, what's the difference between a creed and a confession? So what is a creed? Well, if you think of the Apostles' Creed, what what is the key statement of the Apostles' Creed? I believe. I believe, right? I believe so a creed has typically been understood as a statement about the one in whom we believe, so we differentiate a creed from a confession by the focus of it, so creeds focus on the one in whom we believe, and so creeds are typically stated with "I believe or we believe, so we believe, etc cetera, etc, cetera. and so this is a, a statement. So creeds were used by the church as a way of confessing together the one in whom they believe. Making a statement of common confession together. Think of it as kind of a pledge of allegiance, if you will. We're pledging faith in this one whom we are confessing. And then, of course, there is content to the creeds. Those creeds are made up of propositional statements that constitute the fundamentals of what we believe. So we'll talk about uh, these creeds more specifically here in a minute. But if you think about uh, this idea of confessing together, let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Turn, for example, to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul makes a very brief but interesting statement as he is encouraging us to be imitators of God, as he's encouraging us to walk in love, to imitate Christ. In verse uh, 14, he says, for this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now, in your text, is that set off? This has typically been understood because Paul is referring to something that, that it, he's saying it says. For this reason, it says. Well, well, what is he referring to? Now, this is not a quotation of the Old Testament. He's not drawing from the Old Testament. So what is he drawing from? it has been commonly understood that what Paul is referring to is a common statement of the church. This is something said commonly in the context of the church such that Paul could refer to it and and, and understand that the Ephesians would know what he's talking about. For it says, and then he quotes this, so they, they must have been familiar with this statement. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter three, and if you look at verse 16, here again, we have Paul saying by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who is revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So there is a statement again, and if most of you probably have that set off again in your, in your scriptures to indicate that this is generally understood to be a confession. In fact, Paul says here, by common confession, and then this is set off. So this is something that apparently uh, Timothy and the church would have been familiar with and would have understood to be something that was recited together as a people. It was recited together as a confession or as a statement of propositional truth believed on by those who made confession of it. So this is the idea both behind creeds and confessions. Creeds, however, are, are more oriented around the one in whom we believe and generally stated with those propositional statements, I believe or we believe, and then the proposition. And again, creeds are generally oriented around those things that are fundamental to the faith. So they're, they're, they're basic uh, essential truths. Whereas confessions, as we'll see, go beyond those things that are essential or uh, that are fundamental, if you will. So when we think about creeds, again, so if we think about how they're different from a confession, if a creed is a statement about the one in whom we believe, a confession is what we believe. So the the creed is we believe in this one and we're making statements about the one in whom we believe and a confession is stating this is what we believe and the confession goes beyond as i've been indicating it goes beyond that which is fundamental or essential to our faith so if you think of the apostles creed the apostles creed states that which is essential or fundamental to our faith everything in it must be believed. Now, the Apostles' Creed wasn't the first creed. We don't know when the first creed came about, but the first one we have record of was the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed was first originated in 325 A.D., and then it was redrafted and readopted again in 381 A.D. Now, anyone know why, what, what kind of... Uh, what kind of instigated or or encouraged the church to the Nicene Creed? What's that? Arianism. Arianism. Yeah. So there was a controversy going around in the church. A man by the name of Arianus, Arianus was teaching a doctrine about Christ that was heretical. Augustine and Arian do battle together one another theologically over the, the reality or the, or the teaching of Christ, and particularly in reference to Christ's deity. Is Christ simply a man who, who has the appearance of God, or, or is he God who has the appearance of man, and how does this work out? And the Nicene Council was called in order to work through this issue, and out of the Nicene Council comes the Nicene Creed. Now we have recited the Nicene Creed from time to time here. The Nicene Creed is primarily about Christ, but it also addresses it addresses the whole trinitarian question, but the focus of the Nicene Creed is the deity of Christ. So you understand that there was an historical reason or context for that creed, but then that creed becomes it gets adopted by the church and then is recited. In fact, the Nicene Creed has been recited by the church in various contexts since its inception in 325 A.D. Now, we'll talk here in just a moment about what happened in 381, but let's move ahead to the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostles' Creed, it's difficult to know exactly when the Apostles' Creed is formally come about. It's probably sometime in the 5th century, so 400s A.D., Hard to know exactly, but nevertheless, it becomes a part of the church, and it becomes something that is confessed. In fact, the Apostles' Creed really takes precedent historically over, even the Nicene. And the Apostles' Creed becomes the creed that the church confesses regularly. In fact, as you know, uh, we confess the Apostles' Creed each time we share in the Lord's Supper. So this morning, we will be confessing the Apostles' Creed this morning. Uh, Who wrote... Who wrote the Apostles' Creed? (laughs) So it would seem like that, right? It's like, well, it's the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles must have written it, right? No. No. Anyone else? Anyone know who wrote the Apostles' Creed? It wasn't the Apostles. No one? Well, you're in good company. No one knows. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, no one really knows where it originated. There's a lot of speculation about who it was that originated this. But, but actually, I think it's a blessing to us. Here's a case in which we really don't know its origin. We really don't know. But we do know this. The church embraced it very early. The church has used it as a common confession. And, and as, as, as a result of it not being identified with any one person, I think that's a blessing to us. It is the church's creed, if you will. Why did they call it the Apostles' Creed? Well, because they believed that this was fundamental to apostolic teaching. So they were relying, they were looking at what the apostles taught, and in particular the apostles as those who who brought forth the gospel. As Paul says, he himself reveals the mystery of Christ to the church. That's his responsibility uh, especially. But the other apostles are bringing forth the gospel, and so it is called the Apostles' Creed as that which... Uh, provides for us apostolic teaching and that which is fundamental to our faith. So you look at the Apostles' Creed and you say, look, we can say this about the Apostles' Creed. At a minimum, you must accept it as true, that every proposition in the Apostles' Creed must be believed in order for there to be orthodoxy. So you can hold out the Apostles' Creed as a test, if you will, as a as a measure to say, is someone orthodox or not? Can they confess in faith the meaning of the Apostles' Creed? And if so, they are orthodox. Now, it is not the sum total of what is orthodox. In other words, there are other matters beyond what the Apostles' Creed addresses that bear on orthodoxy, but it is, at a minimum, that which articulates fundamental orthodoxy. yeah that's that would derail us at this point, so yeah <laughs> there's been a so there's actually just real quickly about that because we we do not recite a particular line of the Creed and he descended into hell and so there's been a lot of debate over that we've had debate with among the board here about that very statement probably will again continue to have debate um, because it, it's a it's an important statement. Uh, historically the church has had a creed both with and without that statement. So historically you've had the creed with that statement and without that statement. You've also had the creed with that statement rather than saying he descended into hell, but saying he descended into Hades or he descended to death. And so there's been a a wide variation of statements within on, on that particular phrase, all the way from not being included to saying Hades to saying to death. Um, it's an important discussion, one that we're continuing to have. I question. I mean, I was raised to say, I believe in um, And yet, we printed up this we but I always feel like I can't speak for others. This is what I believe. And, yeah. Um, you know, I can understand the church people. Age, yeah. But we can't say who's sitting next to it. Right. That is a great question, and I'm glad you asked that. The question is, she uh, Deanne has indicated that she has always uh, been taught to say "I believe," and I can't say "we" because I don't know what y'all believe. Well, actually, when we say "we believe," we—if if we understand what we're saying—we're actually not looking at the person next to us and saying with confidence that person believes or all of these people believe. What we're saying is, "We, the church, believe." It is a—it is a recognition of orthodoxy for the apostolic church to say, we believe. In other words, we, the church, the the true and faithful church, this is what we believe. And so it's not a statement about the individuals around you. It is about a statement of the common confession of Christ's church, his bride. It is what she confesses. Does that make sense? So when we say we believe, I'm not saying I know everyone here believes this, but what I'm saying is, this is what the Orthodox Church believes. I believe this, and we, the church, the true church, believe this. Okay? All right, so confessions then go beyond the creeds because confessions deal with the content, the specific doctrinal content of what we believe. And it presses out into all kinds of different uh, matters that do not bear on uh, fundamentals or essentials of the gospel. So, for example, we've spent a fair amount of time um, on end times matters, on eschatology, right? The study of end times. Is this an important subject? Yes. But is it essential? In other words, is it fundamental to believe orthodox to believe one of those positions over against another? Well, no. And so it's not creedal in that sense. It's confessional, but it's not creedal because it's not essential. Now, is it essential to believe that Christ will return again? Yeah. Well, that's in the concrete, right? And so the confessions are about what we believe in detail. The, the, think of it this way. The creed creeds are intended to be more universal, whereas confessions are tended to be more local or denominational. So uh, associations of churches or fellowships of churches or denominations have confessions or local churches have confessions, but they are expression of what we believe as as a local church or as a fellowship of churches. Yeah, we'll talk about the difference between a catechism and a confession here in just a moment. Um, would, would it also be right to say that uh, in, a, in a confession, even though there's a lot more detail here, not every matter is a, is a secondary matter? So sometimes you have matters taken up that are, that are um, fundamental, much more details given. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the confessions. The question is, do the confessions also address fundamentals in addition to those other issues? And yes. So the the confessions deal with the whole of our faith, and and many of those things will be fundamentals and essential. So the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, um, the doctrine of of Christ, um, the doctrine uh, concerning justification by faith. These are fundamentals and essentials to our faith that are included in confessions. But confessions go beyond the fundamentals and include other matters, secondary matters, and even sometimes tertiary matters that the church believes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, actually. The, the creed is referring to something in the New Testament, and it wouldn't have been a statement in the New Testament. It wouldn't have been the Hebrew word sheol. That would have been an Old Testament word. Uh, and so, yeah. But that, that, that debate over the inclusion of that statement is really, that, that'll derail us if we, if we go there. But it's a New Testament statement that it's referring to. Not, a, not an Old Testament statement, and therefore not sheol. Yeah, sheol, sheol. I'm not a Hebrew expert, so, Shale. What's what's a good way? I'm thinking about uh, different churches who might um, believe the same things, but they treat the idea of what's essential or not differently. Yeah. How do we we parse through that? So you know, so you might say, like, just as an example. That you've got a you got a, a, a church which which by creed or confession or whatever believes in the Trinity, but they're pretty accepting of Mormons or something like that. Yeah. Like how do you how do we understand like is is understanding what is essential? Is that in itself an essential? I guess that's my question. <laughs> the question is how do we how do we discern the essentials? How do we know what's essential and what's not, especially since there there can be disagreement about what is essential and fundamental. So let me uh, let me jump ahead, if I will. And if you look at the very last flip your, your notes over and look at the, the last statement there, this is actually from the Second London Baptist Confession, uh, chapter one. And paragraph 10, chapter 1 is uh, entitled the, Of the Holy Scriptures. So this is dealing with the scriptures. And let's, let's look at this, what it says. It says, the supreme judge by which all controversies of re- religion are to be determined and all decrees of counsels, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined. And in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the holy scriptures delivered by the Spirit into, into which Scripture so delivered our faith is finally resolved. So in essence, what the confession is saying is, look, there are uh, there are a variety of confessions and there are a variety of counsels and opinions, but the final arbiter of all of that is the Scripture. So you say, well, yeah, I mean, everybody thinks that and then they differ on essentials, but The question is let's go to the scriptures and let's resolve it from the scriptures not from a confession or from a creed let's go to the word and we have to debate it there and and we trust that the spirit of god leads his people to that which is essential through his word and yeah it's it's debated but i think that's as best i could say in answering that question Essential, yeah. You can yeah. The church has unfortunately neglected to include those things at times, which are essential, uh, which of course makes them not the church. Um, and then um, at times adds things as being essential, which really ought not be essential. So yeah, the church has gone in both directions. But but this is where where the confession, the, w- which we'll be looking at, takes us back to the source, which is the scriptures. Which are inspired by and illuminated by the Holy Spirit, and that's our final authority. <clears throat> yeah so let's uh so let's look at that, so you have this division between the East and the West, and this really comes to the Nicene Creed um and to what's called the Filioque clause so um the church so <laughs> Um, If one if you if you have opportunity to to do some study in the history of the church, um, there is on the one hand, this amazing display of God's providential care of his church and his superintending of his body over time. And, And we see that providential care and God's amazing grace and kindness most magnified in the tremendous brokenness of the church historically. And so there's a lot of controversy that's taking shape early on. We've already talked about the debate over Arianism and the deity of Christ. There are many such debates. Now, fortunately, there aren't many that, that really bear on such fundamentals as that. There's only a handful. But one of these debates is whether or not the statement that Christ... Uh, or that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son. So uh, the uh, Nicene Creed says, the, the one we recite says, that, he, that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. But that wasn't original. And the Son was not original in that creed. Or, or that's not what came out of the original council. Now, that council was a council between the whole of the church. So you have this West east-west division. You have Rome and, and you have Constantinople. You have the east and the west, and you have bishops coming together. And, and you have a bit of division from the beginning, culturally, between these. And not only culturally, but politically, between these. So they come together as a council. They agree on the creed, which does not say and from the sun. And then later, there's another council held at which time the East is not invited. So this becomes a political issue, right? The East is not invited, so they're not brought to the table for the discussion, and this clause is added, and from the sun. Well, the East objects, and it objects for two reasons. And it's debatable over which is the more prominent of the reasons. The two reasons it objects is, number one, it says that's not right, that that is wrong to say that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. He only proceeds from the Father. And number two, we weren't invited, and therefore we don't think this is right. The church should be confessing this. We're part of the church. You've changed this without us being there. And so that... That arguably is really the the, the main issue that's actually the issue of contention. And later on, you have um, multiple popes as a result of this division between East and West. And you have popes from the East uh, excommunicating popes from the West and vice versa. In fact, at one point, they excommunicate one another. And that wasn't actually resolved until I think it was 1960s when the Catholic Church and the Eastern Church finally came together and removed those excommunications. Um, And so you have this political division going on over the question of, should we include this statement uh, that that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son? So that's this division. Now, there is more to the division between the East and West. That's the catalyst of it. You can see that it's primarily one of political controversy. Um, in addition to doctrinal controversy, it also bears on matters of, of iconography and whether the church should be using icons or not. In the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church believes that use of icons is a good thing that is, images, statues, things like this that that's a good thing. In the West, they say, no, that's idolatry. And so you have this further schism between the East and the West. So that's, that's kind of a, an overview of how these creeds end up. They're obviously very, very important for us to work through. Now, there are other matters of the Eastern Church that we would say that the Eastern Orthodox Church is not actually Orthodox. So to say the Eastern Orthodox Church is a misnomer because they're not Orthodox. There are other matters over which we would have serious disagreement, and particularly those that bear on justification by faith alone. Okay. So let's look at the historic confessions then. So let's talk about the difference between a confession and a catechism. So let me ask you this question What is a catechism? What does the word catechize mean? Teach. To teach, right? So what is a catechism? It's a teaching tool, right? So it's a, a tool used for instruction. Catechisms are always written in the form of question and answer. Right? So what is the only hope? What is our only hope? Right? So that's a, that's a confession question from the New City Catechism. And actually, it's not just from the New City. It's also from others. Um, we are not our own, but belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right? So there's your question and your answer. That's a catechism. Catechisms generally float out of confessions. So generally the confession precedes the catechism. The confession is written, agreed upon, and then catechisms follow. And the catechisms are generally tied to the confession for the purposes of instruction and actually most commonly for the purpose of instruction in the family. So these are primarily given to families, and particularly to fathers, for the use in the home to teach and instruct children. And that's the question and answer format is particularly conducive to instructing children along along those lines. I would strongly encourage you to use catechisms, if you're a parent, to use catechisms for the instruction of your children. They are very helpful. Now, you want to use a good catechism, one that, that lines up with your confession, right? Okay, so that's, first, so a confession is a statement of, it's a propositional statement saying, here's what we believe. A catechism takes that propositional document, puts it into the forms of questions and answers for the purposes of instruction and especially instruction in the home. Clear on that? So some good examples of catechisms would be, for example, you have this acronym there, WSC, that stands for the Westminster Shorter Catechism. That would have been more oriented for children. It was brief or more brief. And then you have the Westminster Longer Catechism, which is the fuller explanation of it. And then you have, um, you have the 1685 Catechism or Keach's Catechism, Or the Baptist Catechism, this is actually the catechism that flows out of the London Baptist Confession. So Keech, Benjamin Keech, was likely one of the editors of the Second London Baptist Confession. And that confession has 120 questions, I think, something like that. And it's a very, by the way, it's very good, it's a very good confession, or catechism. And... And then, of course, we have used the New City Catechism, which is a kind of a, a combination of the Heidelberg and the Westminster and others. So that's what we have recited here the New City Catechism. It's good to be updating confessions and catechisms because there are, other, there are always matters over which we debate, and, and there are always matters to clarify and, and things to wrestle down. And so it's good to be updating these things from time to time. Okay? All right. So let's look at a, a brief history of confessions and the key confessions that come about. So in 1530, you have Philip Melanchthon. Anybody who knows? Who is Philip Melanchthon most associated with? Martin Luther. Philip Melanchthon is a student of Martin Luther. He's contemporary and a student or a disciple of Martin Luther, Philip Melanchthon works together. He's the primary author. All of these confessions are written together with groups of people, but there generally tends to be one or two key individuals with whom that confession is attached. Uh, Melanchthon is, is well known for the, having helped to write the Augsburg Confession in 1530. Now, the Augsburg Confession is written from a Lutheran perspective. That makes sense, right? Melanchthon is Martin Luther's disciple, so this, this is the confession even today of the Lutheran Church. It's part of a broader group of, of documents used by the Lutheran Church in their confessions. But the Augsburg Confession is a part of that their their broader um, their broader library, if you will, of confessions and, and statements. It's a Lutheran document. Now it's written. As all of these are, it is written as a kind of defense. Um, what is the predominating religion, if you will, at this time? Catholicism, right? Catholicism is the predominating religion of the day. Obviously, the Reformation happens to reform doctrine that is in error from the Catholic church or from the Roman Catholic church. I should be more specific. And so the Augsburg confession is written kind of as a polemic. It's written kind of as a, as as an argument or a statement against Roman Catholicism. And it's written as a defense to try to say to, to powers to be, look, we're Orthodox. We're okay. Don't persecute us. So that's, the origin of most of these confessions, as we'll see. So the Augsburg is the Lutheran confession. Around that same time, in 1536, you have the Helvetic confession. Now this is being done in Basel, Switzerland. Why Switzerland? Well, (laughs) because Switzerland is a safe haven for believers. Switzerland is a place that you can go to and not get beheaded. And so... Switzerland tends to accumulate over time many of these reformers who then write confessions because Switzerland is a safe place to go. So out of Basel, Switzerland, comes this Helvetic confession in 1536. Heinrich Bullinger was likely the primary author and editor of this confession. And then in 1562 and in 1564... Bullinger revises the confession kind of as a personal exercise, so he he rewrites it devotionally for himself, but his rewriting his devotional uh, rewriting actually gets taken up and becomes popularized later, so that the second Helvetic confession is the more common one now the first draft of this confession was rejected by the by the committee, by those who had the council, by those who had gathered as being too Lutheran, so they were they were actually recognizing some fundamental problems with Lutheranism with the Augsburg Confession and were wanting to clarify some things and, and the first draft was too Lutheran. Now, um, there's a statement in the in the Helvetic that refers to, to Mary um, there's a lot of question about this. What is clear is that Bollinger, actually along with Calvin believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. So believed that Mary never did have sexual relationships with a man. And Calvin believed that, and apparently Bollinger believed that as well. Bollinger apparently also believed that Mary was assumed up into heaven at some point. So he had some interesting beliefs about Mary um, at that time. Mm-hmm. From yeah. So what? Yeah. The question is, does it, does it have any, does the Augsburg have a, a re- direct relationship to the 95 theses? I can't answer that. I don't know. Um, I don't know the, the origin. It's certainly a document that is focused on distinguishing, um, distinguishing their confession of faith from Roman Catholicism, but from, the perspective of primarily from Martin Luther and from his teachings. Okay, so then in 1559, Guido de Bray, he is part of the Dutch Reformed Church. So he's in the Netherlands. By the way, the Netherlands also happened to be a place of safe haven. Happens to be a place where many reformers go to get uh, get away from being imprisoned or get away from being beheaded. And so, the, in the Netherlands, Guido de Bray works together with the Dutch Reformed Church and writes the Belgic Confession in 1559. Now, that's, that becomes connected to the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a German document, which is done in 1563, that Heidelberg Catechism likely flowing out of the Belgic Confession. Remember, we said the catechisms are, they generally flow out of a confession... That's done in 1563. And then in the 17th century, in 1618 or 1619, you have what's called the Synod of Dort. So you have a council meeting in, um, and I'm I'm drawing a blank on, Dort is short for, Dort, huh? Dort just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, anyway, it's short for a a city. Um, And out of that come the canons of Dort, now this is in response to what is called the remonstrance. So a teacher actually later picks up some of these arguments. You may know Arminius. What, what term do we get from um, from Arminius? Arminianism or Arminianism, right? So Arminius later picks this debate up and really begins to challenge because. Calvin actually is playing a dominant role in the theological thinking of this period. So Calvin actually overshadows Luther in the the church predominantly as the one who really sets the tone for understanding um, our faith. He writes the Institutes, which actually is another polemic. Uh, Calvin John Calvin writes the Institutes to the king to say, hey, look, we're orthodox. It's okay. You don't have to behead us. And, and because of the institutes and in that, this becomes a document that's well read and really plays a significant role in shaping the beliefs and confessions of the church. So these are largely Calvinistic, but there is pushback. And, and the pushback largely has to do with two issues. It has to do with, is man really dead in his transgressions and sins? And is God really sovereign over salvation such that he has an elect people from all of eternity? Or is there some way in which this deadness is overcome and man's free will is exercised in, in his decision to become a Christian? So this is the key debate. Obviously, Calvin, along with the reformed church, is saying, look, when Paul says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he means you were dead. Um, I'll save the Princess Bride reference for later. (laughs) He means you were dead. And when Paul says um, that, that we were chosen by God. He really means we were chosen by God from the foundations of the world, that we were predestined according to the counsel of him to, to, to the count, to, to the purposes of his counsel, to his glory. He really means that. So this is a debate. This, this charge against the Calvinists, the movement that, that comes about is called the Remonstrance, and they level five charges against the church. There is a synod that comes together called the Synod of Dort, and out of this is a response to the remonstrance and a, a, what, uh, what is called the canons of Dort, in which it responds to those five things. Now, anyone know what those five things, what an acronym for them are? TULIP, TULIP right? Um, did anyone know? It? Okay, what does the T stand for? Total depravity. Total depravity. U? Unconditional election. Unconditional election. L? Limited atonement. Um, I? And P? Perseverance of the saints. So is that primarily... So that tulip, is that a is that a Calvin thing? No, it's actually not. It's actually a remonstrance thing. That tulip is a pejorative. It's used against Calvinism to say, look, this is bad, bad, bad. But the Synod of Dort comes and takes up those five points and argues for them. Now, the L would be the one that they would... Now, let's back up. Tulip. You understand they weren't writing in English, right? So tulip wasn't a thing. (laughs) But were they writing in English at that time and they had this question about L, they wouldn't have used. The Calvinists, myself included, our church included, would not use an L. We would not say limited atonement because unless you are a universalist, you all believe. Everybody believes in limited atonement. In other words, unless everyone is saved, the atonement must be limited. The question is, by whom is it limited? The Arminians would say it is limited by man. Man must choose. We would say, no, it is limited by God. It is limited by what he chooses to do from all of eternity. And therefore, we would not call it limited atonement. We would call it definite atonement or particular atonement or particular redemption because it has to do with God, what God definitely did and for a particular people for whom he did it. So that's the Synod of Dort. This is included in what's called the three forms of unity. So the Reformed churches as a whole typically rely upon what are called the three forms of unity, and these are used in matters of ordination and other matters of coming together to discern orthodoxy within the the Reformed movement, and those three documents are included. Okay? Okay. And then you have the 39 Articles in 1571. This is uh, the Church of England. So the Church of England, because of Henry VIII, uh, the Catholic Church won't give him uh, a divorce from Anne Boleyn, and so he divides from the Church. He, he politically moves away and creates the Church of England, which is also called the Anglican Church. Here in the United States, it's typically called Episcopalian um, That Church of England has its 39 articles that are adopted by the the English or the British government as that which is uh, that forms their confession. And that's part part of what becomes the common book of prayer. Um, We'll talk more about that more next week. And then in 1644, you have the first London Baptist confession. This is written by what are called particular Baptists. And John Spilsbury is the, probably the, the key author there, author there but there's a, a group of churches that primarily are in London that meet together to write this confession. And here again, this is a polemic. This is a statement to say, look, we're orthodox. Please stop imprisoning us. And uh, the, the term particular Baptist is set in distinction over against general Baptist because at the time, you had a division within the, among the Baptists. By the way, Baptists referring to baptism, believer's baptism. So the Baptists are, are distinguished because they believe in a disciple's baptism or a believer's baptism. And, and the particular Baptists believe in particular atonement. And the general Baptists are more Arminian. Right? So that's where you get the term particular Baptist as opposed to general Baptist. Okay, then in 1646, so this is taking place roughly around the same time as this meeting in London, you have the Westminster Confession. You have over a hundred representatives gathered together in a council. Uh, this is charged by the English Parliament that at that time. There had been some freedom granted to, um, to move away from or not to uh, hold so tightly to the 39 Articles. And you have this Westminster Assembly. Now, this, is, this primarily becomes Presbyterian. The Westminster Confession is not exclusively Presbyterian, but that's what it's most commonly associated with today is Presbyterianism. And uh, this is done by the Church of England. Now, the Church of Scotland... Now, you know that Scotland is part of Great Britain, right? Right? So the Church of Scotland at the time doesn't accept this confession as its primary document. It does accept it as a subordinate standard. So you do have some division between mainland Great Britain and Scotland over this issue. And there still has continued to be some differentiation between Scottish Presbyterians and English or American even Presbyterians. But the Westminster Confession is written in 1646, And then, of course, in um, 1660, you have a a nullification that takes place from the British crown that nullifies the freedoms that have been granted, the the religious liberties that have been granted, nullifies things like the Westminster Confession in, in, in as much as it differs from the 39 Articles, and persecution begins again. And so you have persecution... Starting up, you have in 1962 the Act of Uniformity, in which Great Britain institutes the common book of prayer as that which is required of everyone. And then you have the nonconformists, who are typically Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists, who are saying, look, we can't be on board with that, and they're persecuted as a result. Okay? So it's out of that, or in kind of in that whole milieu of, of... of topsy-turvy political events going on. In in 1658, you have the Congregationalists, Thomas Goodwin and John Owen, primarily among them, writing their confession called the Savoy Declaration. This is very, very close to the Westminster with just a few differences between them. They're very much alike, but there's some few differences. These are Congregationalists, they differ from the Presbyterians in their polity, in the structure of their church, Presbyterians and Congregationalism. So, and again, you have uh, Thomas Goodwin and John Owen being a part of that. And then in 16, actually in 1677, you have the Baptists gathering again, Nathaniel Cox, Benjamin Keach, gathering to write their second confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, it, it becomes called the 1689 because of the act of toleration. We'll talk about that next week, but why that's the case and what was going on historically in that confession. And then, of course, fast forward, way, way forward to 1925, you have Edward Edgar Young Mullins, Mullins excuse me, helping to write the Baptist faith and message. If any of you watch the proceedings over the Southern Baptists, you know that the Baptist um, faith and message is a primary topic of conversation and they're generally debating amendments to it or um, uh, I forget the term they use. Uh, resolutions, thank you. They're generally debating resolutions and whatnot that have to do with their confession and what they, what they believe together. So the, the Baptist faith, and message, is the Southern Baptist confession. And then, of course, you have various doctrinal statements written by various denominations and churches, including the Berean Fellowship. So, what's the value and importance of confessions? Well, confessions serve as a rule of faith and practice. And they have large, they historically had a large amount to do with ordination. So, if you look at the Presbyterians, you cannot be a Presbyterian pastor unless you are examined on the Westminster Confession and you are able to articulate what it means and defend it. That is, unless you have minor differences in which you defend those differences and note them. And then the the council determines whether or not they'll grant that exception. But you have to defend what you believe based on the confession. And this has historically been what the church has used to ordain pastors. And that's done so for the purpose of of solidifying the faith, for unifying the faith of the people, and for for helping to articulate what we believe, what it is that we unify around, and, and helping the people to understand what they believe. And why these things are important. And so the, the, the confessions serve this. And so we've had a weakening of the confessions. If you look at most doctrinal statements today, they are very brief. Um, with all due respect to our own fellowship, the Berean Fellowship's statement of faith is just 10 simple statements compared to 32 chapters of the Second London Baptist Confession or similarly to the Westminster. So it is extremely brief. Our confession would make up, in words, probably less than the first chapter of the London Baptist Confession. Um, This this simplifying of doctrinal statements is not a credit to the church. It has not been a good thing. And it has led to a weakening of doctrinal understanding because it doesn't raise the questions that confessions raise It doesn't actually raise the matters over which we should be discussing because it's too general. I had a seminary professor once say that uh, unfortunately many students were coming to seminary not even knowing the questions to ask. And well, why don't we know the questions to ask? Well, because we, we don't have confessions that are robust that help us to understand what questions we should be asking. And the confessions serve this wonderful purpose of raising for us fundamental issues. Well, when I say fundamental, I mean very important, including fundamental issues that we should be asking about and we should be thinking together about. Yeah, the question is, is this a result of our culture? And I would say it is. I would say that this is actually a very subtle form of pluralism. So just as our culture has become pluralistic in the sense that, you know, hey, you can believe this, believe that's your truth, my truth, the church, without intending to do so. So the church has has meant well, and there are some reasons why they've done what they've done. We'll talk next week. We'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on this. There are reasons that are commendable, but in the end, what we've subtly done is an embrace the kind of, Pluralism allows for variance of belief. Can you write it down? Next week we'll take it up. We're going to need to wrap this up. Um, the last thing I'll mention is that there is an increased generality in preaching. Um, because if you have a generalized statement of faith that doesn't delve into the details, when you stand in the pulpit and preach election, what 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 happens? you fracture your church because your doctrinal statement has allowed for a wide variety of very different confessional understandings. And therefore, when you get specific about a confessional element, you end up fracturing the church because you haven't cultivated that from the beginning. You haven't organized yourself around a unified way of believing. We'll pick up this uh, this concept of confessionalism next week and we'll address this question of um no creed but the bible or deeds not creeds next week and then we'll, we'll we'll look more specifically at the history of the london baptist confession itself and give some background there let's pray father we thank you so much for this morning we thank you for the opportunity to look at the history of these things and to to think together about what we what we say we believe and what we uh, who we who we believe and lord we we know the um, you have given truth to us so that we might know you and put our hope and faith in you. And Lord, we thank you also that we have, uh, the church has labored to wrestle with what it believes specifically in many different ways. Lord, help us to appreciate these things. Help us to appreciate your sovereign providence in caring for your church through history and leading us to this time. And help us to embrace these things with joy and gladness in our hearts. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.